Shut up and sit down. Listening to the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. We finally crowned our champions in the NCAA tournament. We'll talk a little of that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode five of The Bridge. Well, it was a beautiful day today. This being Sunday, April 12th, the sun was shining. It appeared the spring had finally sprung, at least in the Northeast. It's been quite the rough winter, not something that... We're not incredibly used to, but it kind of wears on you pretty hard when you look out in April and there's still snow on the ground or falling from the sky. For me, as a sports journalist, it becomes especially hard when you're waiting for your spring outdoor sports to get underway and games continue to get canceled and pushed back and schedules just get blown to bits because of the weather and fields not being up to par. But a little bit locally here in Scranton, at least, the renowned half marathon was run today in downtown Scranton and surrounding areas. 13.1 miles completed by the participants. As you know, marathons are one of those events where everyone gets a medal for participation, and that's probably one of the few sporting events that deserve a participation medal for completing such a task like that. A half, of course, not as impressive, but still very impressive and quite the feat to run 13.1 miles, half of a normal marathon. If you want a little bit of an apples-to-oranges comparison as to what I did today compared to the runners that competed in that marathon, I ate half my girlfriend's ahi tuna wrap. Congratulations to those runners for competing in that and finishing it. I'm sore from just walking around New York City and Hoboken this weekend, catching the PATH train, catching the subway, walking from here to there. My hip is sore, my knee is sore, my feet are shot, and these people are running 13.1 miles. I get winded just trying to catch the PATH train in Hoboken. So that just goes to show you why I'm behind the mic and those people are out there running for their lives to compete in these marathons. So good for them, and it's great to see that the weather may finally be starting to turn in our favor. It seems like forever since I've been on here doing a podcast, but it was just last week we reviewed the Final Four and the men's NCAA tournament. We went over the games that happened there, and I did a little bit of a preview as to what we might expect in the Duke-Wisconsin 2015 National Championship game. Some of those predictions came true, and you could check out that podcast at LondonBridge.com from last week and make fun of me for the things I may have got incorrect. But I wanted to touch on that game, of course, just a little bit, not going through all the major intricacies, but just some of the major points from that game and some of the things that might happen from it moving forward. And as I mentioned last week and in previous episodes as well, as a huge Duke fan, it's been five years since 2010 when Duke ended up facing Butler in the national championship game. 
since I had that feeling of nervousness and being unsure as to what the outcome of the game might be, and you get those butterflies in your stomach, as all sports fans know, when their team is about to play in the national championship game or the Super Bowl or the World Series, it's a feeling that you really just can't describe unless you've been there before. Sorry, Eagles fans. But as far as the Duke game was concerned, it was a great basketball game from start to finish. A lot of people and experts were really hoping for Kentucky to make it to that national championship game for not only a shot at a perfect season, but for seeing what that team could do in such a high-stakes game. We ended up with Duke-Wisconsin, which proved to be perhaps even a better game than we would have seen had Kentucky made the national championship game. If you haven't heard by now, I feel bad, but let me break the news to you. Duke ended up winning the national championship 68-63. to And just like the final score shows, it was a back-and-forth battle for most of the game. One of those edge-of-your-seat games, especially if you were a fan of either team. And both teams did have chances to pull away at different points if they made the right shots and made the right defensive plays. Great analysis there, John, because uh, that's usually how you win most games. If you score the most points and prevent the opposing team from scoring as many, you usually win. But hey, just wanted to keep you honest. The tale of the first half of that game was really involving fouls and foul trouble for Duke, not so much foul trouble for Wisconsin. I mentioned on last week's podcast that if a team were to get in foul trouble, especially with its big men, It could pose very severe problems for that particular team, whether it be Duke and Justice Winslow or Jaleel Okafor or Wisconsin with Frank Kaminsky and Sam Decker. Unfortunately for Duke, they were the ones that fell into that trap. Wisconsin, only two fouls against them in the first half. It was a little bit of a different tale in the second, but Duke's big men were in foul trouble early. Jaleel Okafor and Justice Winslow both ended up with two fouls. At one point at the end of the first half, Coach K of Duke even moved to a 2-3 zone to try and relax Wisconsin's offense and just try and get into the half down by two, down by four, maybe down by six, but keep it close enough to where they weren't completely out of it, basically just to survive. And they did do that. Shockingly for Wisconsin, they were unable to really give that final blow and pull away with a big lead at the half. Then in the second half, Wisconsin goes on an offensive run. You kind of expected to see this with their offense. It works so well that at one point, Wisconsin goes up by nine with around 13 minutes to go. And as a Duke fan, you kind of start thinking like Rocky in Rocky Four just waiting to throw that towel in with Apollo in the ring. Thankfully, Duke fans did not throw in the towel, and that was prevented by someone that you would not have thought would have brought Duke back to life, and that was freshman Grayson Allen. Grayson Allen, one of Duke's All-American players, spent most of the regular season coming off of the bench and really didn't have a major impact for them until the NCAA tournament when he really needed to be a role player for them, and he stepped up huge in a lot of situations He comes off the bench for Duke while they're down 9, goes on his own 8-0 run, and really gets them back into the game, by himself really, and was one of the biggest impact players that they had throughout the entire night. 
And Justice Winslow, his teammate, was on ESPN Radio last week, and they asked him, what is Grayson Allen like as a player? And he said he was one of those players that goes all out in practice. You don't want to have him guarding you, and you'll end up with scratches all over your body from how he is as a defender. And if you happen to be guarding him, he goes hard to the hole. You'll get elbows in the face, elbows in the chest. You'll come out of the practice black and blue, whether or not he was guarding you or you were guarding him. He's one of those players. But he gives you that fire coming off the bench, and he's a player that he said you need to have on your team. And I know exactly what Justice Winslow is talking about because I had a player like that when I played in high school. One of those guys that would elbow you in practice and dive onto the floor and, and get his knees dirty, if you will. Because at our practices, the starting five obviously were on the floor playing in a scrimmage against the five other players who I guess you would say would make up the top ten. But when somebody made a mistake or needed to come out, you weren't necessarily assigned that role on the bench. You would have to just jump in and continue on playing. So if somebody got yelled at at practice and needed to come out, you'd have to just jump right in there and take his place. For me, being a center, I couldn't necessarily jump in to cover up the point guard position or shooting guard position because that's not where I play. Nor was I one of those players that had my feet in the running position like you would see at a track and field meet, just ready for the gun to go off and me to get into that practice to take somebody's position and impress the coach. But we had one of those players, and even playing after high school in a couple pickup games, we still throwing you to the ground and diving on the floor for rebounds. Like, dude, playing pickup basketball now. There's nobody to impress. Let's take a breath and relax here. But that's Grayson Allen on Duke, and that's just the player they needed in the national championship game, and thank God they had him to bring them back within one point against Wisconsin. And aside from Grayson Allen having that jump-out-of-the-chair moment when he went on his 8-0 run, including an N1 play to really ramp up the team, the other jump-out-of-your-chair moment came with about 125, maybe 122 left in the game. Duke freshman Tyus Jones comes down. Duke is running the shot clock down on offense, and it's getting near the end of that clock, and you're wondering what they're going to do. Tyus Jones just pulls up from straight away at the three-point line and drains a three to put Duke up by eight. He goes crazy. The crowd goes crazy. I go crazy at home, which caused a lack of voice for a couple of days, but well worth it. And that, in a way, was the dagger for Wisconsin. Tyus Jones ends up getting the MVP. He finishes the night with 23 points. And he really helped them down the stretch in getting and holding on to that lead to give them that national championship. Then, of course, at the end of the game, we get those post-game interviews. And Bo Ryan is asked about differences in the officiating in the first half compared to the second. And his follows being 2-13 to 13 and what he thought about the refs and this or that. And he had a lot of sour grapes. I was hung over for most of Monday, not only on the wind, but from the wine from all the sour grapes that he produced on Sunday night. How corny of a joke was that? I've been waiting to use it all week. Anyway, he really blamed the refs at the end of the game, saying that his players don't practice that way. They have ways that they call their offensive or defensive fouls, and that's how they expect them to be called in the game, and really just subtly threw them under the bus for the way the game was refed in the second half. He also mentioned during the press conference that the Wisconsin program doesn't do rent-a-players. They don't go after those five-year seniors, which was just a way of covering up the fact that they don't like those one-and-done guys that Duke and Kentucky end up having on their team. 
He tried to cover his tracks in a way, saying about that fifth-year senior, but what team is doing that? What example do you have of that? It was a little bit of a dig to Kentucky, but he couldn't give that after beating Kentucky because what difference did it make there? They won. But after losing to Duke, hey, why not throw some shade at the one-and-done style of coaching that both Duke and Kentucky have? A quick note about that, by the way, speaking of players being one-and-dones, we've already had the first one-and-done from Duke announcing that he will be going to the NBA draft, and that is Jaleel Okafor, which could be a sign that he's also going to bring with him Tyus Jones and Justice Winslow. Because going into this game, Wisconsin versus Duke, Wisconsin's veteran team playing against this young Duke squad that mostly consists of freshmen, only eight players that were under scholarship, only 10 players suiting up. How would they match up in one of the biggest games of their lives? But I think what a lot of people realize is one of the biggest reasons that Duke was able to get Justice Winslow, Jaleel Okafor, and Tyus Jones was the fact that the three of them had played together for several years before ending up on Duke. They were good enough players to play overseas in those U15, U16, U17 tournaments against some of the best high school players in the world coming from all across the country, and they won some of those tournaments. So it's not like they weren't playing in big games or against pretty stiff competition. They were playing against very talented high school players and still playing at a pretty elite level. So it was cool for them to make that decision like, hey, why don't we do this? And Tyus Jones and Julia Okafor became really good friends, best friends, if you will, playing overseas. They end up declaring for Duke on the same day and going to play for Coach K. They got Justice Winslow's attention. He ends up coming to play for Duke. And of course, Coach K had a lot to do with it. But I think it was interesting that they were able to do that. And it ended up paying dividends for all three of them, ending this season with that national championship. A great story for all three of them. But while the game was nice and a great win for Duke, one of the things that came up because of the win is in talking about head coach Mike Krzyzewski's legacy at Duke. With that championship, he now has five for his career, moving away into sole possession of second place on the career championship list, five titles, of course, behind John Wooden which is a number that's probably never going to be touched. Ten national championships, especially in this day and age, just isn't a feasible thought. There's not going to be a coach in the men's game that's going to lead a team to ten national titles. I just don't see that happening. But what is impressive about the five for Coach K is the eras in which he was able to accomplish those five national championships. Of course, looking back, you had those first two titles back-to-back in the early 90s with Christian Leitner and Grant Hill and Bobby Hurley and those complete teams that he was able to have in the early 90s. You have the team that was able to win it at the turn of the 2000s with Shane Battier and Jay Williams and Mike Dunleavy. Can't forget him, of course. Then you have that team in 2010 that really didn't have a lot of star power but had a complete enough team to be able to make that run and win that national championship game against Butler, the Kyle Singlers, John Shires, and Nolan Smiths of the world. Some of the starters on that team and reserves that came in are guys that you'll never remember again, but they were there and they helped. And then you have this team with probably the most one-and-dones on one roster that Duke will ever have, 
playing against teams that are doing the same thing. Just incredibly impressive to be able to get those guys to come together as one. Because if you look at it, that 2010 team was able to win because of its experience. They had a lot of four-year players who were getting to the end of their careers, really wanted to make that impact. They had played with each other for a long time. Everything kind of came together at the right moment, that one shining moment, if you will, and they were able to get that championship. This year's team, as I mentioned, didn't have as much experience, at least when it came to playing against other collegiate teams, but the talent was incredible. And it just goes to show you where this program has come. I mean, we're only about six or seven years from when players just did not want to come to Duke. I mean, there were a couple of players. One was from, I think it was Harrison Barnes on UNC. He had committed to Duke. He was coming for about a year. And then right before that, he just said, you know what? I'm going to go to North Carolina. And reporters asked him, well, why? What's wrong with Duke? And he's like, I don't know. I played with those guys and I'm not feeling it. Can't do it. Can't play with them. Can't win with them. Can't do it. And that was kind of how the culture had been for Duke. I don't know why it started to happen, but the novelty had kind of worn off from that team. But then around that point, things started to change. They were able to win that national championship, and then they were getting those one-and-done players who wanted to come to Duke, even though they weren't going to have a lengthy career, to see what they would be able to do under Mike Krzyzewski. We had Austin Rivers, who was a one-and-done player. Kyrie Irving was a one-and-done player. Most notably, of course, Jabari Parker from last year, a one-and-done player. Interestingly enough, had those players stayed, I believe all three of them would have still been eligible to be playing on this team. Austin Rivers, Kyrie Irving, and Jabari Parker. Can you imagine what a team that would have been? But of course, money does talk, and why wouldn't you want to go to the NBA and Kyrie Irving has already started putting together a pretty awesome career. Austin Rivers, unfortunately, has to play for his father. And Jabari Parker's season was cut short because of his ACL injury, so we're not really sure what he's going to turn into in the pros. But getting back to Coach K, just looking at what he's been able to do as the head coach from Duke. And remember, when he was first hired, his first three seasons were not great statistically, he had a losing record in his first couple seasons at Duke, and in today's day and age, they might not have rehired him and brought him back to see if he could right the ship. He might have been gone after those first three years because of what Duke stood for as a basketball program. Because before he came around, it's not like Duke was awful. I mean, they were still good. They weren't really winning back-to-back-to-back titles. There were other teams that had taken the reins, but they weren't awful. But once he got going and, and really started implementing his system, seven Final Fours in nine years from 1986 to 1994. I mean, his first Final Four was, what, 29 years ago? And he didn't win a championship with what was probably his best team. That was in 1999. And, of course, they won two years later. But that team went 37-2, and and one of those losses was in the national championship game. And, of course... You can't speak about Final Fours without mentioning John Wooden, who only went to one in his first 14 years at UCLA. After that, though, uh, 10 national championships in the next 12 years, not too shabby. But if you remember, some of you may not, because like myself, we were not around in that era for the tournament. What I think made the tournament interesting back in that time period was conference champions were the only teams that made the tournament. 
There was none of this playing games or you get an automatic bid or you did this and you do that. That didn't happen until I think 1974, which of course benefited UCLA because they were playing out West. They didn't have to travel. They were playing a lot of teams that they had seen throughout the season and knew what was coming. Of course, they had Hall of Fame players and collegiate superstars like Lou Alcindor, Luke Walton's father, of course, because I mean, he's never going to amount to Luke. They had a lot of great players, don't get me wrong, but it was still impressive what John Wynn was able to do. I'm just saying it's not how it is now, where teams that are in the East have to play games in the West, and it's just a matter of where you get situated in the bracket and what teams you might end up facing, and if an upset works your way. There's so many things that have to happen in order for you to even get to the Final Four now. If you look at it on paper, it's baffling in a way. It's very difficult to win a national championship now. It seems like the teams that continue to get back there get there because of their head coaches who are able to prepare their teams for opponents in a 48-hour time period, which is really what you have to be good at doing, and being able to travel and not have that affect your play. Another great coach that was good at that was Dean Smith at North Carolina, Some people don't give him as much credit as he might deserve because he doesn't have as many rings, but he went to four Final Fours and won a national championship in his last seven years as a coach. And in his last 17 years, I think he made the Sweet 16 15 times, 16 times, and he was there every year. So the things he was able to do with that program are incredibly impressive as well. Now, granted, again, for Coach K, He's also won gold medals as the Team USA coach. So he has that to go on. And why wouldn't you bring that up when you're going to recruit? It's like, hey, man, you may think you're tough, but uh, I coached LeBron. I coached Kobe. I've coached all your idols. I've coached them all, and I've won with them all. Why not come play for me, brother? Come on. We can do it together. But even with doing all of that, he's able to build these relationships with his players. You could just tell that he still has that same enthusiasm that he did when he first started coaching. He's into every game. He cares about these players. Just seeing him celebrate with his team after winning national championships, you could tell that the bond that he has with his team isn't something that you're going to find with your everyday normal coaches. I mean, he's still hard on his players. He harps on them when they do things wrong. He shows intensity of practice. If you ever watch videos on what he does, he'll still yell at these players. But he knows how to coach players. He knows how to deal with personalities. He's had thousands of different personalities that he's had to deal with as a head coach. Some guys more outgoing. Some guys more leaders. Some guys more passive. Some guys more introverted than others. But he's able to put them all together into one final product and a one team. And it's just been great to watch for basketball fans. Even if you rip Duke and hate on Duke, you still have to respect what Coach K has been able to do with that program. And of course, he said he does not plan to retire after this season. So hopefully he can continue doing this for a couple more years and we could be talking about his legacy even more down the road. Speaking of legacies, I would be remiss, of course, if I did not mention that UConn, the women's UConn team, was able to win their third straight national championship, beating Notre Dame 63-53. And poor Notre Dame having to go up against UConn in the last five Final Fours. They've lost three out of those five chances. They lost last year in the national championship game. 
They've built kind of a rivalry up against UConn with head coach Gino Ariema, who has now won his 10th national championship, tying him with, of course, John Wooden. So he clearly must be one of the best, if not the best, collegiate basketball coach of all time. Right? Anyone? Crickets. That's not to take anything away from Coach Ariema. He's done an amazing job with that program, really just built it into a dynasty. It's it's a team that you never want to play because you're probably going to lose, and they usually just run through the tournament until they get to the Final Four and maybe play a more difficult game. But it's the second straight time they've won three championships while Gene R.E.M. has been there. The first was in 2002 to 2004, back when Diana Taurasi was playing and really putting UConn on the map and changing the culture of how basketball is played at UConn. It's been a very impressive feat, and Gino will be the first to tell you. He toots his own horn every once in a while. I think he enjoys letting people know that he has 10 national championships. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's a damn good coach, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Unfortunately for him, there just isn't any equal programs to compete against the UConn women's basketball team. Notre Dame has come pretty close at some times. Stanford's done it a couple times. Of course, Tennessee with Coach Summit has had a couple very good teams. But the difference from the women's game to the men's game is the men's game, as we see every year, any team in the tournament, except for the 16 seeds, can take down their opponent in the first week or the second week, depending, because the competition is just so much higher than it is in the women's sport. And again, that's not taking anything away from what Coach Ariema has done over at UConn. It's just the facts. I mean, they were beating teams throughout the season by 40, 50, 60 points. Spreads for the game were like minus 35, minus 40, and they'd cover. And he hasn't so much as coasted to 10 national championships, but there's been some years where you just knew they weren't going to lose. And there were times in the Notre Dame game where things were close, and then it just seemed like they'd flip a switch, and before you know it, they'd go on a 10-0 run, a 12-0 run, and they'd be back up by 9 or 11 or get back to where they wanted to be, and the game was over. So I can't blame Gino for tooting his own horn for what he's done in his career. I just can't give him as much credit as I would like to just because of the situation that he's in. But seriously, that's enough about college basketball. Other things happen today. Sunday, the Masters finally coming to an end. Four days of great commercials and broadcasters that don't want to talk above a whisper telling you what's going on in front of them. This year's Masters won by 21-year-old Jordan Spieth, and I hope I'm saying his name correctly because... I know about four golfers, and he's not on the list. But he finished 18-under for the four-day event, second youngest Masters winner of all time next to Tiger Woods, a name I know. In uh, 1997 was when Tiger won that Masters, and Jordan Spieth led for all four days, really just put things away after the first two days. He was setting records every day that he was doing this, 21 years old, doing these things on the golf course that I can't even dream of doing. I mean, when I was 21, Thursday, Friday, Saturday was bar night, and then Sunday was recuperation night. So I did not have the lifestyle at age 21 that he did to win a master's championship. 
And I just want to reiterate the fact that he is indeed 21, because if you see his picture around, he does look like a, a 35-year-old, 40-year-old man. He's, you know, he's balding a little bit. He looks old. He looks aged. And he does act that way. He acts very professional. He's a great face for golf if he ends up being somebody that we see in future events because he carries himself great on the golf course and was able to put forth a historic effort in this Masters. But he just doesn't have the looks of, say, Mr. Rory McIlroy, who finished in a tie for fourth at 12-under, had a really crappy first day, ended up having to play catch-up. Had he had a good first day, he probably would have been in the running to try and take him down. Tied for second was also Phil Mickelson, who shot a 14-under, he also was in a position to make a late run, but was unable to do so. And the most notable name in the bunch, who I mentioned a short while ago, Mr. Tiger Woods, coming back from yet another injury and time off and whatever else he was doing, ends up in a tie for 17th, shooting five under. But what was good to see is that his game is sort of coming along again which was good to see because his short game was one of the best attributes of his golf game, being able to control the greens, his chipping. That was all there. He was also back to his old tricks of just cursing himself out when he would shank drives or shank these long shots that would just go sailing into the crowd, calling himself a dumbass, throwing F-bombs all over the place on national television. Back to his old tricks, which was good to see. And it was nice to see him put together a decent effort. He at least made the cut this time. Because as I mentioned, for the casual golf fan, there's four or five names that you know. And the rest of the guys you just find impressive just because they're making history, which was the case for this Masters. So it would be nice for the game of golf for Tiger to get back to decent form and at least having a chance of taking home a title here and there and getting back into chasing the Jack Nicholas number that he's been after for his entire career. And with that, we'll wrap things up for this week. You can find my previous podcast and more information about me in the show at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same Twitter name, at London Bridge. Also at LondonBridge.com, underneath each podcast episode, you'll see a little link there to subscribe to this channel on iTunes. You can listen to the show there as soon as it's posted and make your train or path rise a little bit more exciting than sitting in silence. You can also listen to the show on SoundCloud or check it out on Stitcher by downloading both those apps and having those on your phones as well as another means to listen to the show. Until then, thanks again for listening. Next week, we'll be digging into the NBA playoffs as well as checking out what's been going on across Major League Baseball. So I'm excited to get into that and anything else I happen to have up my sleeve on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. <laughs>